0: The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome to you all. This is another edition of Stein Online's live Clubland Q&A. It is Friday, September 29th, the first Q&A of the fall. No, I guess the last one would have been the first. Maybe I missed honoring the arrival of fall. I was too sad lamenting the departure of summer last week. But nevertheless, we are coming to the end of September and in keeping with Stein Online tradition, even if it is as of today in the absence of Mark Stein, I will share with you that where I am in London Ontario it is Friday just after 4 p.m eastern time it is Friday morning at 8 a.m in Baker Island or on Baker Island I should say Uh, Friday afternoon at 1 p.m in Vancouver British Columbia and also Whitehorse Alaska so we can go both sides of the Canada U.S. border on that case uh, where are we looking from here? In the Galapagos Islands, it is Friday afternoon at 2 p.m. In Bogota, it is 3 uh, Heading across the Atlantic, we're uh, getting rid of the maritime provinces today. I honoured you guys enough last week. It is uh, 8 p.m. Friday evening in Sao Tomei. It is 10 p.m. in Zagreb and 1:47 a.m. Saturday morning in Kathmandu. And uh, who's furthest ahead right now? I guess we have uh, in the Chatham Islands it's uh, 9 9:47 a.m. But in Kiritamati, it is Saturday at 10 a.m. So they win every time. I should give a bit of an apology, Andrew Lawton here. By the way, I mispronounced uh, Kiribati last week, and it was like the first comment on the show. You know, I, I'm not like a really really insecure person, but every now and then I like to check in in the comments and see what people are saying, and I, I got so excited, we posted the show, I checked, and there was one comment, and I'm like, ooh, which of my incisive and witty observations does someone want to laud? And the only comment at the time was pointing out that I had mispronounced uh, Kiribati. Well, I have uh, successfully been re-educated, and Kiribati, Kiribati Kiribati Kiribati, ah, nope, darn, I need to go back to my Kiribati re-education camp before long, but we'll get it right next time, although I don't know when the next time is going to be, because Mark Stein himself will be returning to his rightful seat as the Clubland Q&A guest host in exactly seven days' time, so you won't want to miss that. I certainly won't want to miss that either. We are able to talk about anything you'd like on these shows. Honorable mention to those of you who are members of the Mark Stein Club, as you must be if you'd like to ask a question. And I'll just front load my promo this time around. The Mark Stein Cruise is coming up in February and March of 2024. And we've got a, a fantastic lineup of guests. I mean I'm on there too, but I, I so I am I, not talking about myself there. We've got Conrad Black, James Golden, or Bo Snerdly as you may know him, Michelle Bachman, Leilani Dowding, Ava Vlar Dingerbrook. It is going to be a grand old time and I hope to see many of you there, whether you are a first timer or or a Markstein Cruz alumnus or alumna. You are, are more than welcome. But uh, getting into the meat of it, which is your questions, that is uh, precisely what makes this show happen. There's a, a question to lead us off from Tony Allwright, who writes, Hi, Andrew. A few days ago, the delightfully provocative Lawrence Fox, who graced the Mark Stein show on GB News a number of times, said to Dan Wooten on GB News, in reference to a glamorous lady called Ava Evans, a political journalist who had apparently belittled male suicide or something. I wouldn't want to, well, we're not Ofcom regulated, so I guess I can say shag. I wouldn't want to shag a hyper-offended fourth-wave feminist I would run a, run a mile in the opposite direction from women like her. For this, he is being roundly castigated and probably cancelled again. Even Dan Wooten is in trouble. But since when did it become offensive to say you don't want to sleep with someone? Even Russell Brand or the notorious Harvey Weinstein did not stoop down to the level of Laws' horrendously heinous crime of not wanting to sleep with a minor celebrity. Looks like Lawrence is on his own in this particular regard. This was a very odd thing all around, and I should say not that surprising. But when I say it's odd, I mean that the things that tend to result in people's careers ending, or at least particular aspects of their careers ending, are often not the things you expect it to be. There, there are things that might make you blink or do a double take. But uh, th- like, for example, Rush Limbaugh when he went through his many, many efforts to have him canceled, one of the ones that I recall very, seeming very real, was over his comments about Sandra Fluke, which I I won't belabor. But that was the one that seemed to have the most legs of of all of it and had people that had been longtime Rush fans saying, oh, I I think Rush might be done. I I don't see how he weathers this one. And anyone who had listened to Rush had, had seen this before and had seen people get mad about Things that on the surface might have been more, quote unquote, offensive, but but oftentimes it's about what people think is the most saleable argument against you, rather than what is the the most genuinely effective argument against you. And and Lawrence Fox is hated because of who he is. He's hated because of what he stands for. He's hated because he's an actor that doesn't go along with the conventional orthodoxy. He's, an, he's hated because he's pro-Brexit. He's hated because he's pro-life, because he's anti-political correctness, all of these things. And, and And whenever that's the lens through which your critics view you, everything you say is outrageous. Everything you say is offensive. Everything you say should end your career because they hate who you are. So they just look for the thing that comes up that they feel they can make the most hay out of. And this was just an absolute perfect storm. Uh, An older guy talking in a sexual manner, whatever the comment is about a woman who is younger. And in this case, it's counterintuitive. I mean, if he had said I wanted to, Shaker, I presume that would be offensive. He's saying, I don't want to, and I don't see how anyone would want to. And, and this has now uh, caused, uh, so far as I'm aware, three suspensions at GB News. Lawrence Fox was the first to go, and then uh, Dan Wooten was, and then uh, Calvin Robinson, who I had the chance of, of spending a bit of time with. He was in Davos last year. Uh, he wasn't one of, you know, Klaus Schwab's young global leaders. He was there reporting on it. And the... Crime that Calvin Robinson had doesn't even appear to have been anything he did on air. It was just posting on Twitter about the importance of standing up for free speech. And it was actually quite moving how Calvin Robinson acknowledged how poorly he felt the community of, of GB News supporters and presenters were when Mark Stein was going through what he did at GB News with an outlet that waited until he was on leave because of his heart attacks to just uh, do what is called in North America, I don't know about in the UK, constructive dismissal, which is basically just changing the terms of your job to such a point where there's no real way to continue. And uh, right now, I'm, I'm minded I'm reminded of a few different things here, which is that this is the people's channel. This is the the channel that posits itself as the irreverent, hard-hitting voice of the people unshackled by political correctness. But you don't need to be shackled by political correctness when you allow yourself to be shackled by Ofcom in the most narrow way possible. And we're not even talking about a purported Ofcom violation here. We're talking about a comment that however offensive it may have been to people did nothing other than violate the sensibilities of... A few people who hate GB News and everything that its presenters purport to stand for as it is. Now, I must be perfectly candid. I had never heard of Ava Evans. I looked her up when this whole thing happened and realized that she followed me on Twitter. And, you know, which is flattering enough. She's got, you know, 100 and some odd thousand followers. And I I looked up her original comments. Now, I wasn't as incensed by them as some other people were. I actually didn't feel she was belittling male suicide. I just think she's oriented in such a way where she doesn't really acknowledge the existence of male problems. She thinks that if an issue is disproportionately affecting men as suicide is, we should just talk about suicide and ignore the fact that it's a male issue. And I suspect that uh, she does the opposite when there is an issue that disproportionately affects females. But I don't find that to be all that outrageous. That's just like the standard order of thinking from a female personality who identifies as a feminist. So so I didn't get as upset about what she said when I looked it up as Lawrence Fox did, but that's fine. He can draw his own conclusion. And similarly, what he said, I, I didn't get the outrage when, when I first saw... All of this controversy on Twitter the other day, I went to the clip and I, I assumed I was seeing something that was only a snippet of it. I, so maybe my threshold for offense is just so high I don't belong in, in this world, or certainly in the confined and constrained UK media environment, uh, but I've always been an American at heart when it comes to free speech issues, but I just fundamentally didn't get didn't get the outrage that either side had towards the other. And, and I go back to what I said at the beginning, which is that none of this has anything to do with what was said. It has everything to do with the existing and baked-in beliefs about the players involved. And I, I think that, you know, we're obviously going to see the cancel mob descend on people like Lawrence Fox. There's nothing surprising about that. The importance is that people like that have institutional backing. Because the only way you win against cancel culture is when you have other people that are prepared to stand up and say no. And increasingly, capitulation is the norm. We go to this company and say, oh, we don't think you should be advertising on such and such a platform because they have so-and-so, and it's more expedient for that company, whether it's you know Coca-Cola or Delta Airlines or whatever. I'm, I'm just picking random examples to say all right we'll pull the ads you know maybe we're only spending fifty thousand dollars it's pocket change to us we don't really care we'll pull the ads and then the winners win and the winners carry on and the losers are the people who had no institutional backing for their position. Lawrence Fox is a guy. He's got a bit of power, a bit of profile. He gets up there. He says what he's going to say. Uh, the institutional backing he needed was from GB News and his colleagues. And you get people that are too cowardly, that want to preserve their own position more than taking a stand for anything else. Uh, and by the way, uh, there are people at GB News who were very happy to, to stand up for Russell Brand uh, because they felt he was being unfairly maligned. Russell Brand, who was accused of much more serious things than Lawrence Fox has been accused of, of doing here. And those people have not, so far as I've seen, taken a stand for their own colleague. And, and that tells you a lot because they can, be, they can be edgy and irreverent and counterculture and wanting to buck authority all they want up until the point that it will come at a personal cost to them. And when GB News is suspending just anyone and everyone who so much as breathes in Lawrence Fox's direction, they're trying to tell their people that we will not tolerate dissent. We may be the voice of the people, but we will not tolerate dissent. We'll be the. I mean, that is the. Very, I don't like the term because I find it thrown around, but that is the very definition of controlled opposition. When you are only prepared to go so far as to stake a position up until the point that it comes at a personal risk. And at that point, you're not actually doing anything that is resembling principle. And and that's where I find this to be so uh, insufferable. I I mean, I've been through the cancel culture mill myself. And, uh, you know, at a certain point when it feels like you have no friends in the world— It's easy to flock to even just the smallest and smallest token that's just thrown in your direction, the little morsel of kindness when you feel everyone's hated you. But with the benefit of hindsight, I look back on all that, and I have very little time and tolerance for the quiet ally, for the person that says, I'm with you, but don't tell anyone. And, you know, I noticed this on Twitter the other day when Dan Wooten posted this statement. And I I met Dan once and, you know, nice enough guy, no real relationship with him. But uh, Dan Wooten posted a statement about how, you know, outraged and it was offended and it was terrible and he's sorry. And then, uh, you know, Lawrence Fox, (laughs) to his credit, posts the receipts, as they say. He shares the screenshot of, you know, him and Dan Wooten just, you know, yucking it up about the segment because uh, Dan Wooten's apology or Dan Wooten's text to Lawrence were either complete BS, and you can decide for yourself which one it was, but then Dan gets suspended. Calvin Robinson sees this from the sidelines, says, no, we have to take a stand and, and now he's suspended. I mean, I, to be honest, by Monday, they may not have anyone left. So if you're looking to make your foray into English media, now's probably your time with, you know, half of GB News on leave for daring to support Lawrence Fox. And, you know, it used to be that outlets would defend their colleagues and, and put forward a united front. But uh, there are things to which GB News seems to have a bit more loyalty than its own people. One of them is Ofcom, evidently. And the others, I'd say, are now the social currents on social media, such as it is. Uh, Alison Castellina writes, The BBC Today reports that Reverend Calvin Robinson, its ordained Christian commentator and presenter, currently suspended from GB News, has said he would only appear on Dan Wooten's show if suspended uh, Wooten is presenting it. The BBC goes on to report that Calvin says his bosses at GB News are scared of Ofcom, the broadcasting regulator, the woke mob, and careerist vultures within GB News. Can you make any sense of his reference to careerist vultures who are terrifying the bosses at GB News? It sounds like a very dysfunctional organization. I want to put in a word for its audience, too. Constantly losing faces has uh, uh, constantly... Losing faces uh, one has not only grown accustomed to, but one looks forward to seeing and hearing in a climate in which most other TV programs are clearly oozing propaganda and military-grade mind control packs a cumulative punch. Traumatized audiences have limits to the injuries they can sustain. We are nearing the end of TV, in my view. Who has facilitated this? I, I, I mean, I've already criticized GB News. I, I, they've been very kind to me personally outside of my relationship with Mark in the past. They had me on to you know talk about the Freedom Convoy uh, among other things, and uh, you know I think they they have a number of good people there. I also think they have people who have no backbone whatsoever and uh, Sun News Network in Canada had this where as a network it wanted to be very punchy and irreverent and attracted a, a solid core of people but then it had another group that was just there because they wanted the job and they had no real investment in the organization or what it was trying to do. Because they were employees, they were not part of a movement. And I I think GB News is like that as well. You have people that have come from all the other networks that they all just do this sort of musical chairs thing around, and they work on this show at Channel 4, and this show at BBC, and this show at GB News, and not all of them are true believers in what the mission and mandate are supposed to be. And I will say, Allison, to your question about Calvin Robinson's statement. I mean, Calvin is a, a deeply principled person. He, uh, even when he wanted to be ordained, he he wouldn't go along with uh, what you know the Church of England was trying to do, which is why he ended up, as I understand it, getting ordained in in one of the offshoots of, of the Church of England. And I, I think that there is a, a great challenge for people at this organization that. Uh, say one thing, and and when push comes to shove, don't behave in in that way. I just one stupid example, and maybe I shouldn't tell this. I'll tell the story. Who who cares that much? Uh, GB News is you know all the all about the gender stuff, and you know their shows are all about oh we need to push back against the gender insanity. Uh, the one thing when I when I visited the GB News studio in London for the first time that I was struck by is how they have gender neutral bathrooms. So you go into the bathroom. And it's a bunch of individual stalls and then one common area that is where the sinks and blow dryers are. And you walk in there and, you know, I, I'm not particularly uncomfortable around women. I mean, I'm not comfortable around anyone, but, you know, women know worse than men. And, but, but they're women in television. They, they take their appearance very seriously. So you've got women doing their makeup and, you know, all these things. And then you've got, you know, the, you know, slobby guy from the control room that wants to go in and, you know, get rid of his bean burrito. And they're all in the same bathroom. And again, these are the people that on air, will talk about how terrible, you know, gender neutral washrooms are, but off air, this is what the powers that be decided they would do to design their studio space. And, uh, you know, you don't want to read too much into stupid stuff, but, I think there's something very revealing in all of that, that when you are on one hand committing to be one thing that you won't even offer to the people on your team. And again, it's also like they've committed to this weird open concept uh, thing where there are no private offices and you don't even get cell reception in The office so if you want to like take a call you've got to like rush out to the stairs and walk up to the street so when you show up at GB news like all their producers are standing on the street because that's the only place quiet enough or giving them reception To make a phone call so your, your, your point of dysfunction. I think is very accurate now My information is I don't know a year and a half old since since I saw it but uh, take from that what you will and I, I think there's a, a bit of an issue there uh, Chris Day, I, I, we won't do an all-GB News edition of the show, but uh, Chris Davies writes, Thanks for keeping the seat warm. GB News, the so-called People's Channel, is imploding to the point where free speech is an existential threat. Too many, and presenters are thin on the ground. Schadenfreude may be the most unfortunate of emotions, but what goes around comes around, it seems. Do you know any careerist court eunuchs willing to tow the Ofcom line until the GB News broadcast license is inevitably withdrawn. Keep well. And uh, Joy writes as well, I do hope Andrew talks about something other than what is going on in Canada. Ooh, I sense a little bit of judgment there, Joy. I will be talking about Canada, but I led with the UK today. I would uh, like to hear his opinion on the craven cowards at GB News and their suspension of Fox, Wooten, and now Calvin Robinson as well. Flopidopolis and company are clearly running scared stiff of off switch and it serves them right after the way GB news threw Mark to the Wolves I think the end of GB not news could be in sight well it it depends I I mean GB news was originally when it launched filling a vacuum in UK media and then talk TV decided it wanted to play as well and you know they're investing a a ton more money and, and for a time did not really have any ratings commensurate with how much they were spending you had you know pierce morgan spending i don't know millions of pounds a year on his show getting trounced by mark stein's show where uh you know the budget i don't even think extended to like you know clean water glasses in the studio for for gb news so the thing that i would point out on all of this is that content matters and you can have the most glitzy design whatsoever but if you don't have content that's compelling, it it's not going to matter. And I noticed something in media, and I I'm not saying the UK does this specifically, but, but GB News does it and my old radio station in Canada did it as well, where they start to treat hosts as expendable. And, you know, you notice, you know, my name's Andrew Lawton. My show is called The Andrew Lawton Show. And if something were to happen to me, The Andrew Lawton Show could not continue in any way. And, and at GB News, you've got folks like that. You've got Dan Wooten tonight and, you know, Mark Stein and Lawrence Fox and all of these folks. But, but there are also some outlets that you'll see that try to just make the host like a, an add-on to the name. So it'll be called, you know, the breakfast show with so-and-so or the exchange with so-and-so or the conversation with so-and-so. And, and they're and trying to basically swap out people so that they believe the brand exists in a larger way than the person's brand does. And they want to keep their people like that to exact power and control over them. And I, I think that's going to be what we see a lot more of moving forward from, from media in general. Because the, I mentioned institutional backing earlier on, and I, I think there's something to that. You can't fire us all is actually kind of true. Imagine if, you know, Nigel Farage and Dan Wooten and Lawrence Fox and Calvin Robinson and Patrick Christie's and the, the belly laugher and all of them all came out and said, you know what? If you take so-and-so out, I'm done. I'm walking the station would either have to say, all right, if that's that's what you want, go and we'll fill you and we're more important than you. Or they'd have to say, all right, maybe we have stepped in it too much. And I'm not saying it's easy to do that. If, if you're someone that looks and says, well, this isn't my fight. I don't know if they would do it for me. I get it. And then you've got everyone playing some, you know, very high stakes prisoner dilemma type of game. But That's what's needed, because when they do the suspensions and everyone else shuts up, generally speaking, they win. And the pattern perpetuates over and over again until the next thing comes along. We have a question here from Josh Passel, who writes, Hi, Andrew, please tell me you had a better week than Justin Trudeau. Well, I did not applaud a Nazi, so I think it's already a pretty good week. The notorious Mr. J also writes, Once again, hearty wishes for Mark's full recovery. We need him combat ready. The Hunka affair has certainly been an embarrassment to Canada and the Trudeau crew in particular. The Russian media must be crowing. The incident brings to mind the horrible grinding nature of the Eastern Theater of World War II. Ukrainians must have been in a terrible position, in effect living with the only two likely options being fighting for Hitler or Stalin. It's the reality of rock you hard place. As an aside, it's instructive to look at the reality of the European War of 1939 to 1945. We in the West have lived with a folk legend that overemphasizes the role of Western allies in Hitler's downfall. From what I've read, three-quarters of all German losses occurred in the East. In the end, it was the Red Army that defeated Hitler with some help from the West. It has been remarked that the irony of World War II was that we defeated one monster by allying with another. I I suspect we could devote hours and hours to debating who was in the right and who was in the wrong in some of these contexts. I I would generally say that the world has been able to fairly unanimously come to the conclusion that the Nazis were the bad guys in in World War II, and I think for, for good reason. The situation in Eastern Europe, I admit, is complex. If, you're, if you were a Ukrainian in World War II, you've lived through the oppression of Stalin's Russia, the famine, the, the massacre. You've no doubt been aware that perhaps the Soviet unions were not your allies. And, and I think it's understandable why some Ukrainians would have seen their Nazis, uh, the, the Nazis as their liberators. At the same time, they had choices, And I think it's often easy for people to whitewash those who joined up with Nazi units. And, and to give you context here, what happened on Friday last week, one week ago, and I, I kind of made an oblique reference to Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to Canada, but I, I didn't know this had happened. The Speaker of the House of Commons in Canada was you know, reading the, the list of people to recognize in the gallery and mentioned this Canadian hero, this war hero, this Ukrainian hero who bravely fought for Ukrainian independence against the Russians in World War II. And he kind of pauses as he's reading it as though there's some part of him that's trying to compute what he's saying and who this guy is, but he plows ahead and he said the guy's 98 and he's here today and then everyone in the house of commons conservative liberal new democrats separatists they all leap up to their feet and applaud like clapping seals for this man who of course we we find out only through a, a jewish outlet in the u.s forward uh, served with the uh, first ukrainian division which sounds nice enough but the first ukrainian division was a rebranding of the 14th Waffen Grenadier Division of the SS. And this is, I think, a very important point. This was an SS unit. This wasn't a a regular Nazi, or a regular German military unit. This was, or a police unit, this was a Nazi SS unit that was under Nazi command that Heinrich Himmler looked upon favorably because he said the Ukrainians were effectively Aryan enough to uh, qualify, and it was instrumental in in kind of pushing back to in some ways against the Soviets there are accusations of war crimes committed notably against Poles and this was a a group that was a volunteer army not a conscript force so uh, this man who received the standing ovation Yaroslav Hunka, stood up and said at a young age I want to be a part of this now has he regretted it maybe maybe not but if he did I suspect he would not so easily take a standing ovation and introduction as a war hero, and it would not be given to him as readily as it is. Uh, And, you know, we have in Canada statues, monuments to the Waffen-SS, which are baffling. At the same time, we have a country whose founding fathers are being, uh, their statues are being taken down and spray-painted, and they're being called Nazis. But a literal Nazi a literal Nazi, is getting a standing ovation on the floor of the House of Commons. Now, of course, everyone's denounced this and the Speaker of the House has resigned and the University of Alberta, to which this man's family had given a $30,000 donation, has returned that donation and, you know, done the whole we're reviewing our processes to make sure this never happened again. But ultimately, no one cared. And, And I think that there's been a lot of whitewashing of Ukraine, Ukraine's Nazi ties in the past. I, I think that's undeniable. And I say this as like the token supporter of Ukraine, which I, I realize is increasingly an unpopular position on the right. But uh, there, there has been a lot of whitewashing of this and I, I think it should not happen. And, and to be fair, a lot of Ukrainians that I've spoken to have said, Yeah, we have to reckon with this part of our past. And and those folks have said the way we do that is not by, you know, holding up this SS division and saying it was this this great thing and good for them and congratulations. He said the way we do it is by discussing and debating, not by celebrating and cheerleading and uh, you know it was amazing because a week ago I was talking about Justin Trudeau as you know putting Canada on the map in the worst way with India and he couldn't even get get through a week of that before he decided to bring great shame and disgrace on the country in yet another way and hand Russia the greatest propaganda win it ever could have asked for on this which is you know uh, Volodymyr Zelensky putting his fist up and smiling at a literal bona fide Nazi sitting in the House of Commons. I mean, the Ukrainian delegation must have been absolutely livid with Canada after this whole thing happened. Dale Owens writes on this, I read today there are monuments in Canada to the Waffen-SS division Galizien. Why do you think regiments that fought with and were commanded by the enemy in World War II are honoured in this way. Dale, a Welshman living near Milan, Italy. There are uh, not as many Milanese living in uh, Wales, to my knowledge, but uh, nevertheless, thank you for your question, Dale. I I think a lot of people don't know their history. Uh, First and foremost, when this whole thing happened, the the 20-year-old staffers in the Speaker of the House of Commons offices have never picked up a book or looked up Anything to do with world history, because if they did, they'd know that for better or for worse, worse, in World War II, the Soviets were the good guys compared to the Nazis, and and you know the fact that no one saw that is quite disgraceful as far as its reflection of the education system. I would also say that uh, this 98-year-old veteran's family should be ashamed of themselves because they should have known it was them that were pushing for this. They went to the member of parliament and said, "Hey." here's my dad, he wants to go down to Ottawa, here's who he is, they should have known that. So, so these people are clearly of the mind that this was something to be proud of, which, I mean, I get that the Ukrainian diaspora is very large in Canada, but I, I would love to see a bit more introspection on something like this, which clearly does not exist. KD writes, it's amusing to see Justin Castro on the defensive over applauding a Ukrainian Nazi but was wondering if you thought this has any legs. Will it go anywhere? Uh, Well, it already has. Uh, Look, the fact that people are still asking about this a week on is noteworthy. This is something that didn't just make headlines in like the standard political story way in Canada. This made headlines around the globe. And, you know, the India thing as well, just massive. I think what's interesting here is that Justin Trudeau never apologizes. He, he really doesn't. He, he does this obnoxious thing where anytime he does something wrong, his response is to like say that all of us need to learn from it. You know, So he's caught in blackface, and it's about how Canadians need to have a conversation about race. And he's uh, accused of and admitted to groping a reporter, I don't know, like 20 some odd years ago, And he said, well, you know, Canadians need to have a discussion about boundaries and all of that. We need to learn from it. He's caught in some ethics scandal. Well, yes, we all need to do better. Well, no, no, I don't. You need to do better. There are things about which I need to do better in my own life, but this isn't one of them. I didn't invite the Nazi. I didn't applaud him. I didn't say he was a Canadian hero. You did. So why is this a learning opportunity for all of us? And when, when Justin Trudeau finally apologized, his apology was on behalf of Canada. So he said, well, uh, yes, Canada is sorry. And he was specifically asked, are you sorry? And he said, ah, Canada. Canada is sorry. Canada's parliament is sorry. So he won't actually take anything resembling responsibility for this, which is incredibly, incredibly noteworthy. And I think his office was basically of the mind that this would blow over, but it has not at all. I got to take a quick sip of water here, if you'll bear with me one moment. Uh, John, we have a couple more on, on this topic. I'll, I'll try to lump them all together here. Uh, Johnny Woodrow writes, Dear Andrew, was that Hitler chap a visionary? Well, that's a, that's a way to start a question. Putin is now apparently so evil that his crimes echo backwards in time so that even Hitler, it turns out, was ahead of the game as he, so, as he attempted to slaughter Putin's grandmother. Come to think of it, perhaps Hitler wasn't a visionary. Perhaps he was the Terminator sent back in time by Trudeau to stop Putin being born. Trudeau is the visionary. However, the Canadian government's Terminator plan didn't work. And now the West must finish what Hitler left undone in Ukraine. Who are the Nazis again? I'm confused. The bad ones are the ones who aren't Nazis, but drive trucks. And the good ones are the bad ones who, it turns out, were doing the West's work before they knew it. I think I need to take the WEF Young Leaders course on history that Trudeau sat through. Apparently, they have modules like, who is your favorite Nazi? How to spot one you like and how to falsely label up opponents you don't. How do we spot a Nazi? And Nicola writes, uh, Nicola Timmerman, what do you think of Trudeau trying to make equivalent some Canadian Conservative MPs meeting with a far-right populist German politician a while back and the Liberals letting a real Nazi soldier be applauded in Parliament? Well, this was... So So the, the background here, Christine Anderson, who is a member of the European Parliament for Germany with the AFD. So that gets her accused of... Of being far-right. She was actually called a Nazi on the floor of the House of Commons. Christine Anderson, who I have interviewed and I've met uh, and I've never heard her say anything Nazi-like, she was called a Nazi, the the exact word by a Liberal Member of Parliament in the House of Commons. Now uh, that is incredibly important because we have seen the Nazification of everything in the last decade where If you support parental rights, you're a Nazi. If you support free speech, you're a Nazi. If you oppose diversity, equity, and inclusion training in your workplace, you're a Nazi. You're a white supremacist. We've seen these things that used to be the very worst terms that could be applied to someone become diluted and diminished in value and weight. So that uh, anything and everything is a Nazi, and then you have a case come up where you're talking about a literal Nazi, an actual Nazi, a, a person for whom Nazi is the literal description and a factual one and not a normative one, and everyone clams up. Everyone clams up, and oh well, maybe I don't know. Maybe we maybe we applaud this guy, and I, I like again people that say the million people that were marching in Canada for parental rights a couple of weeks ago, they're all Nazis. When it comes to this guy, well, it's it's complicated and I don't know, It's it's maybe Nazi is a strong word. No, it was a Nazi SS unit. It is as Nazi as it gets. And it's quite shameful that a government that maligns its critics as Nazis was so slow to uh, really hold itself to account on its recognition of a real Nazi. Uh, John Barrett writes, um, where is it here? Would you give us the latest update on the Canadian government's treatment of the truckers and their allies? Have they met with the same draconian punishments as January 6th participants? Are they still in prison? Have seized trucks been returned, bank accounts unfrozen, some still being identified and targeted? It's funny, just on that last note, I learned of a case uh, just this week where someone who supposedly skipped out on their quarantine when they came into Canada 16 months ago was just this week given a ticket for $6,000. Like seriously, they skipped their quarantine a year and a half ago. They were not connected to any outbreaks or whatever. They didn't release the I don't know, the Omicron monkey variant or whatever it was. And now they're facing a a $6,000 fine given, you know, long after the fact. Now that wasn't someone who was in the trucker's convoy, but I still think it it shows the punitive nature of the state in Canada on these sorts of things. So as it happens, this week was a, a break week, as is next week, but there is a trial underway for two of the prominent supporters of and organizers of the Freedom Convoy. One's name is Tamara Leach. She's a, you know, a 50-year-old, uh, five-foot-tall grandmother. And the other is Chris Barber, who's a, a bit of a rough-around-the-edges trucker. But the two of them, Chris and Tamara, were the, the front, I was going to say the front men, but, you know, maybe that's too gendered for Justin Trudeau, the front people of the Freedom Convoy, organizing and leading it and, and speaking for it. And they've been charged with, you know, obstructing police and intimidation and mischief and counseling mischief and all of that stuff. Uh, Charges that, in Tamara's case, she has served 49 days behind bars for because she was arrested and held in jail considerably at first. And then she was also thrown back in jail when she allowed herself to be in a photograph with someone that she wasn't supposed to have contact with. And there were like eight people in the photo, and he was one of them. And uh, that was something they threw her back in the slamper for, for, I don't know, three weeks or whatever it was. So uh, she has served 49 days in jail already for what are really mischief charges, like the the things that would be applied to someone who, you know, maybe kicked over a post box or, or something like that. And the challenge that we see here is that, the government is still wanting to go full steam ahead on these f- things. There have been a couple of cases where uh, the, the ca- they've been quietly dropped. The Crown will say, yeah, we, we, you know, enough time has passed. It's been a year and a half since the convoy. We don't think we have what they call a reasonable, reasonable prospect of conviction. And anyone who's been following the Michael Mann trial will find it, like, quaint that a year and a half is seen as, like, being too long for a case to go on in Canada. But uh, nevertheless, the government wants to throw the book at the front, at the faces. They want to throw the book at the big names because they want to make an example of them and get their pound of flesh. And I, I think what we're seeing here is going to be a a fair bit of relentlessness. Now, look, from my perspective, the case looks very weak. The judge has seemed unimpressed by the Crown's argument, and it it doesn't hurt that the Crown has been rather disorganized in uh, this case. But nevertheless, it's uh, something that's going to keep going on. I mean, this was originally going to be a 16-day trial, and the Crown was going to call 22 witnesses, 16 days. They had in the first 16 or sorry, in the first 13 days, they had managed to get through three and a half witnesses. So they're now trying to desperately find more time that they can all get together. And I think the lawyers were actually sitting down today to hammer out where they're going to do it. So this is going to be a month's long trial. This will last months, and if they can't find availability in the courtroom, it may even go into next year, I was told. But this will be a months-long trial, and it is a mischief trial for people that were guilty of glorified parking infractions, but that made the government look bad in the process. Penns Woods asks... A lot of us in the Southern Canadian territories, Midwest, New England, Upper Plains, Upper Far West, are asking the question, how did our stepmother Canada retreat to its current level? You are a joke, and it's only funny if one is drinking heavily. I'm assuming you mean Canada as a joke and not me personally. The uh, Who knows, though? The question is, can Canada survive? From here, it seems to me, you either throw off authoritarianism or perish with the West. Don't follow the U.S. or you'll surely meet your end. I I try to remain an optimist, in part because I I still live here. And if there's no optimism, the question of why I still live here becomes one that I have to ask with each passing day. But I I like to hold out hope that Canada will not be any worse than other countries. And and I think generally we've seen Canada just be behind other countries. Like, you know, the U.S. used to be behind us. Canada used to be behind Europe and the U.K. And we could kind of look at what's happening in Europe and see a bit of a warning Uh, Certainly on immigration, on free speech, to what we were going to deal with a few years down the road. And I I think on civil liberties, the Europe being ahead of Canada dynamic no longer holds. I actually think Canada is worse than many places in Europe. And I say that with a bit of hesitation because we have a, a somewhat stronger constitutional protection of... Our liberties, I, I say somewhat because the court often does not recognize it. But we at least in theory have that in a way that a lot of European countries don't. I, I mean, for example, if in Austria they had gone ahead with that proposal of theirs during COVID to make vaccination mandatory, uh, there wasn't really a, a great mechanism in Austrian law the, that I recall to push back against it. I mean, Austria... I remember looking into this, and I, someone may correct me if I, I'm wrong, as, as happens, you know, once or twice a year. Like Austria doesn't have one single constitution, if I recall. They they have another a number of documents that have a semi or quasi constitutional status, but but there really wasn't like a, a hard and fast bill of rights that a citizen could look to and say this violates this fundamental right. So you're you're appealing to other bodies. You've got the you know European. Uh, Court of Human Rights, or, or whatever it is, and but but ultimately it it's not that great the situation. And in Canada, we at least ostensibly have a judiciary and a Bill of Rights that we can appeal to. Now, the problem is that those appeals often fall on on deaf ears. And I, I guess the question would be, could some government save it? And I'm I'm growing increasingly weary. Well, weary and wary, I guess. But I, I we're wary of and as a result weary that governments are capable of doing that i mean we could have a conservative government that stacks the supreme court and maybe they make a couple of good decisions although that's no guarantee but then in four years time or eight years time it's a reversal and we we, we're, we're right back to square one and i think that the resting position of canada is not a country that at its core respects freedom the resting position is one that increasingly trends towards statism and that's what needs to change. And it, and it has to be in the people. And I guess my hope, such as it is, comes from the fact that I, I think Canadians do have it in them to stand up and say no. I, I don't think they always have. I think they need some, some cajoling to get there. But I, I do think they have it in them. And I, I think that needs to happen. George Pazan writes, Hello, Andrew. Hope you're well. Thank you for all you and your fellow guest hosts do. I'm sure you'll get many questions. I feel bad because Joy was like complaining about Canadian content earlier. And now we have a few uh, Canadian content questions. But uh, the next question after this is American. I promise. Hey, he writes, Is Justin Herdo really in trouble or are they just teasing us? Rush Limbaugh used to say that Obama wouldn't be brought down in prestige by any normal means. His bad policies or corruption. It would be something silly, he said, that would impact him negatively in the meaningless world, like making fun of the wrong pop star or something like that. I'm hoping this Nazi scandal is the thing that wakes up the Canadian people to what a joke and a dangerous joke Justin is. I I had actually missed that about Rush Limbaugh. I I should look that up a little bit because I find that quite interesting. And it actually dovetails on what I said earlier about Lawrence Fox, which is that the thing that will be responsible for your undoing is not actually the worst thing you've ever done. It's the it's the thing that fits the best into that moment, uh, which is why the Me Too movement was so powerful, because it, it took, in a lot of cases, allegations that were known or uh, in some cases had already been adjudicated, and, and brought them up with a renewed social context. And in that social context, these things that uh, had never really resulted in, in much of a response earlier, all of a sudden had career-ending power. Same as the Black Lives Mo- uh, Matter thing. That allowed this resurgence of a lot of old grievances and as a result some people many people lost their jobs and careers so maybe it won't be the undoing but I, I think there are a lot of liberal members of parliament certainly the Jewish ones that are looking and saying okay this guy's a joke we've put up with him enough when are we just going to be able to say it's time to get a new leader and I, I think that the best outcome for anyone hoping to get rid of Justin Trudeau Is not going to be the wait two years until the next election. I think it's going to be liberal members of parliament, members of his own caucus, that stand up and say, All right, we've had enough of this guy. Let's get rid of him. So far, that hasn't happened. He's had a fairly ironclad grip on his team. So we'll see. Uh, Kenneth writes RFK Jr. is apparently about to declare his candidacy as an independent. My first reaction is that this is too soon. He should stick it out as a Democrat. But maybe going independent is the way to go. What do you think? Well, look, if, he, if he's confident that he has something to offer and he is not going to get the Democrat uh, primary support, then I don't blame him for doing it. Now, just as a matter of logistics, I believe that he will probably, as an independent candidate, draw more Republican votes than he will draw Democrat votes. Now, Uh, Whether we're talking about, you know, like a couple hundred thousand or a couple million, I I don't know. But I I do think that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. right now is enjoying more popularity to a lot of people on the right than he is to a lot of people on the left. You may get some people on the left that are in that sort of anti-populist Bernie Sanders realm that, you know, find him. Or maybe you'll get some people that are just nostalgic that there's a Kennedy on the ballot. But I think it's going to be a lot of Republicans that uh, are not fans of Donald Trump that like, you know, whatever you think of Donald Trump. And I, I, I would vote for him in a general, but I, I have said I, I would not be voting for him in the primary, even though I accept he's, he's going to win that primary. It looks like pretty handily. Jeremy Boring from Daily Wire had actually a, a very evocative tweet on this where he said, you know, Donald Trump was an absolute failure. On the COVID file, and what was interesting is that he he had said we should attack him, we should have it out, we should, you know, have a vigorous primary. He doesn't have a right to the nomination, certainly not having uh, been unsuccessful in the last election, and you know, basically, he's saying that we should all do what we can to get the best candidate, and if Trump's the candidate, then we'll vote for him. And you know, some people that are on the Never Trump camp uh, will certainly take a different perspective on that, but. I, I thought it was interesting. So I think there are a lot of people, though, that, you know, are absolutely incensed by the fouchification of American public health, people who have issues with the vaccine rollout, with lockdowns, with all of that, that are not completely satisfied blaming their state government. And I think a lot of those people may vote for Kennedy. Now, I, I've said in the past that we should look at Robert F. Kennedy with a little bit of context here and say maybe he says the right things on this issue and that issue. But at his core, he is a leftist. If you talk to him about climate, if you talk to him about affirmative action, if you talk to him about taxes, he, he's going to take a position that would be very similar to what you'd get from a member of the squad. And I, I think we should say, yeah, we'll work with him when we agree with you. We'll, we'll have it out and we'll uh, cooperate on this thing. But uh, the idea of like Republicans throwing their support behind him, I, I just don't get and I think is a very dangerous thing. And it's a courtesy that would never be extended by the left to a Republican or conservative that may happen to agree with them on a couple of issues. Uh, Robert Fox writes, I see the big guy, a.k.a. Mr. 10%, declared that so-called mega-extremists, a.k.a. voters, are a threat to democracy. The problem for the president is mega-extremists seem to comprise 52% of likely voters if some polls are to be believed. By definition, wouldn't the other 48% be closer to the extreme than the 52%? Isn't driving boxes of ballots and unmarked vans in the dead of night After the election polls close, a threat to democracy isn't taking two months to count ballots, a threat to democracy isn't allowing ballot harvesting, a threat to democracy isn't Hunter Biden taking bribes from our global enemies in return for political favors from the White House, a threat to democracy isn't having a $33 trillion national debt, a threat to democracy. No. None of it is because it is different when the left does it. The uh, greatest, admittedly the most myopic, line of Kathy Schadels, the late Kathy Shadle, was that, uh, you know, a lot of this, oh, but it's hypocritical, oh, but there's a the double standard stuff, is a load of crap, and you just have to accept that liberals play by different rules, and it's not fair, it's not just, it's not right, but the sooner we accept it and stop complaining about it, the more we can deal with how to fight it. So uh, that's my little TED Talk there to channel the late and dearly missed Kathy Shadle but uh, to your point Robert I I think that you know Biden insofar as he's even online for any of this stuff uh, doesn't actually care he's viewed that half of the population is the enemy and despite his little uh, we can all get along and I'm going to govern for everyone shtick at the beginning and when he was inaugurated uh, it's not actually real and and it's not authentic and it's not going to be The way things go. So uh, when they say threat to democracy, they mean threats to their hegemony. That's what they mean. They're not talking about the country. They're not talking about the institutions. They're talking about their regime. And all they want is to preserve their own regime. And anything that runs against that is going to uh, be destabilizing to them. And it's actually. Quite interesting when you look at exactly how I no, and I don't I don't compare them to autocrats in in every way, but but when you look at how that tendency is exhibited, where regime survival is kind of the goal above all others, and and you can tell when something is real to them because they start to respond to it a lot more forcefully, and and the things they ignore are things they don't worry about, the things they want to tackle head on and fight are the things that they believe are destabilizing to their power. Matt from Upstate New York writes, "Hi Andrew, I hate to be uncharitable, but you may have heard down here in the states that hey ho the witch is dead. Oh, we're going there, are we? Honestly, at this point, even many in Diane Feinstein's own party aren't sad at her demise." Did she attract much attention in Canada, and what is the reaction there? I, I like that you charitably gave me an opportunity to weave a, a Canadian angle into this, Matt. Uh, I, I don't know if Diane Feinstein's death, the uh, late senator from California now, ha- has registered in Canada at all. So I, I won't give the Canadian take on it, but I can give the uh, you know person under 90 take on it, which is that uh, the United States is a gerontocracy. And it seems to be particularly worse in the U.S. than in other countries. It's, uh, you know, it's it's actually, when you watch the clips of Joe Biden, you know, wandering off and forgetting and forgetting his line and not knowing where he's going, or you uh, watch the line about, uh, oh, I don't know, Mitch McConnell just freezing or uh, Dianne Feinstein being pushed through the halls or uh, all of it, it like... It's easy to chuckle, and it's easy to laugh, and it's easy to say, oh, you know, ha, 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 it's, they're so enfeebled, it's hilarious. But, but it's actually quite sad on an individual level that a lot of these people are, are either so... So so narcissistic that they believe there is no need to pass the torch on to anyone else or they are just being manipulated by those around them that believe that the torch won't necessarily be passed to someone that they can manipulate. I mean, if if you work for a senator who is not actually all there, you are a very powerful person like you are like you're already as a political staffer far more powerful than you should be but but imagine if you are the guy that gets to whisper into Joe Biden's ear because he doesn't have Uh, you know, two IQ points to rub together half the time. Like, you're actually a very powerful person. You are the one that gets to control the president of the United States. If you're the staffer that has to pretend Dianne Feinstein has been working as a California senator for the last however many years, you are a very powerful person because uh, you don't actually have a senator that is online to challenge what's being done in her name. So, I mean, yeah, you can chuckle at the clips, you can laugh at the clips all you want, but the real takeaway here is something that, that's quite dangerous, and I, I don't know why in the United States this exists entirely. My my theory is that it's because of the, the crownification of American politics. It's because American politics has this kind of regnant approach to it where— people start treating elected members of you know, Congress and the Senate and the White House, the executive branch, uh, as royalty. And, and oddly, you have a little bit more—I I mean, the Queen could not get away— with doing what Diane Feinstein Feinstein and Joe Biden have done, like, just think about that. If, if her if her late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II were behaving the way Joe Biden was, it, it would have caused a constitutional crisis in the United States. And if the monarch were like that, uh, she would have done everything in her power to conceal it from her people. She would have offloaded responsibilities. And we saw a little bit of that in old age, where she said that so-and-so was going to be taking on more of an active role, and now King Charles III is at some point going to be in a similar situation. But that's the problem, in that you actually have the very worst aspects of monarchy, the very worst aspects of monarchy, which is you know, ruling powers for life, that have been preserved and embedded in the American political system. And uh, that is something that very much needs to end. And it's not going to end with Joe Biden running against Donald Trump. That'll only further the problem. I mean, Trump is a, a spryer 80 than Joe Biden is. But uh, my goodness, the the whole Diane, the fact that this was the final years of her life was just being, you know, paraded about as though she was in some you know, active role. It's actually quite, uh, quite disgraceful. And, and shame on those who kind of try to puppeteer these politicians, whomever they are. We are going to end things there. My thanks to all of you for tuning in to another Clubland q and I will uh, once again welcome you to join us on the Markstein cruise. I'll be there, as will Conrad Black and James Golden, Michelle Bachman, Ava Vlar-Dingerbrook. And uh, we've also got Leilani Dowding coming back. That's going to be a lot of fun. And I hope I'm not forgetting. I don't think I'm forgetting anyone. So uh, that is going to be on February 24th to March 2nd. We're doing a Caribbean cruise this time, which will be lovely. So you can get your... Hawaiian shirt. I know Hawaii's not in the Caribbean, but I I don't know if there are Caribbean shirts that are specifically different from Hawaiian shirts. So you can get your uh, Hawaiian shirts ready to go there. And also Mark will be back next week in this spot on the Clubland Q&A. So I know many of you look forward to his return as do I. So have a great weekend, everyone. God bless you. And we will see you soon. Clubland Q&A is a production of Markstein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.